This podcast does not reflect the official views of TheNexus.tv. Please refer to The Gadget Show, the premiere show at The Nexus, for that. Yes, please listen. Immediately. This is Control Structure, episode 55, for February 17th, 2014. I guess this is President's Day or something, I'm not sure how the formula is for that. Uh, no, I will not say how many episodes of Control Structure there are. I will leave that as an exercise for the website user. Uh, big week to everyone listening, uh, even those people on iTunes or through the website. Uh, this show does have show notes. Please visit thenexus.tv slash cs55 to see them. I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and uh, with me is uh, the one of the hosts of uh, said gadget show. Uh, hi, Ryan. Hi, how's it going? Big week. Huge week. Yeah, huge week. Uh, lots of stuff happening at work. That's good. So, which I will be sprinkling throughout. Um... So I I've leaked on this show, uh, you know, like not not big CIA or NSA leaks or anything like that. Not a memory leak either. Uh, not a memory leak. Okay. Um, so I use at work a platform called Demandware. Mm-hmm. So like how it gets set up, there's you know a staging, a production, and a development environment, and like five or so sandboxes that. Uh, you know, like actual the programmers use, you know, sort of like uh, like a local server on your own box, right? Except it's cloud based. So, uh, you know, one of our clients were like, "Okay, well, we need to refresh our sandboxes because this client, you know, goes through products, you know, sort of like you know, food goes through you, um, and probably almost as fast." Um, so. Let's go ahead and update all of our environments. So I schedule a full site export from staging uh, on Friday, and then like just before we all left, uh, you know, do an import into our own sandbox environments. So like four of us did that, and it was like so big, and combine that with the fact that we hammered it all at the same time, that uh, it took a little took a long time. So long, in fact, that our browsers timed out in the admin panel to start it. Mm. Uh, fortunately, it uh, went through. So, uh, but like later on, I tried to log in to see if everything worked, and I my password didn't work. So, I'm like, okay, well, obviously my password's broken. So uh, let's do the forgot password feature. Except that didn't work either. So I'm like, okay, this is a problem. We're probably going to have to submit a ticket to Demandware saying, hey, stuff is broken. So I mentioned this at the weekly meeting today, and my lead developer says, "Uh, did you uh, export the users also from staging? I'm like, yeah. Oh. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, the solution to that was to use all the staging credentials 
which by that time I had run around the office uh, so uh, bad with uh, like a chicken with its head cut off that it really didn't matter. Right. Um, so everyone's password eventually got reset beforehand. So, although knowing that little tip might have saved uh, uh, some hassle. Mm-hmm. So that just so when you when you do the uh, import, it just wipes whatever was previously there. It it wipes out pretty much whatever the import has in it. Okay. And fortunately, you can selectively you know select whatever you want uh, when you do the export. So, yeah, I got to be careful about those things. So I I did learn one thing, though, is that the geolocation tables are huge. Uh, not exactly huge, but rather uh, intensive. Mm-hmm. In that, you know, if you just do that, the export takes about like an hour and a half or so. And like, it's not even that big. It's only a couple megs. But like, it's geolocation intensive in that it probably draws out the boundaries of every zip code in the US. Wow. Um, so like I didn't do that, but the export still took like an hour and a half or so. But I think that was mostly because of all the products and the fact that it was about 14 gigs when it was done. Hmm. So yeah, fun times. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, you haven't actually been out in the real world on a real job. Well, not in a programming kind of job, no. Yes, and you still work for, like, a school or something. Yeah, something like that. So, uh, here are ten lessons from ten years in corporate IT, uh, written by some guy who has a blog, but I read this, and it seems hilarious and totally possible. uh, So I started reading at number four, and I agree. Yes, um... I, I don't think that I've witnessed any of these specifically, but in some of the jobs that I've had, they are very possible. And in some places, pretty much the rule. Uh, number four being the more distant from computer science that was your college major, the more eligible that you will be as the manager of a software project. If you like, majored in gym, slam perfect. dunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, all those art majors... You, 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 they'll be right there with you. So, yeah, like all the uh, art majors, and I know a guy who majored in history. Uh, he's now working at a warehouse. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I told him, you know, hey, you could probably, like, get in management somewhere. Then he's like, no! <laughs> but he could. It, it's not hard. It's very yeah, easy. Yeah, and, you know, especially, I'm not sure like when I read it, but it must have been like a few weeks before I made that comment to him that, yeah, you know, managers do not really have degrees in managing things. Right. So So yeah. then, I, then I went to number seven because I don't do things in order. When you start in IT, you will read and then curse the source code from all legacy programs. In order to ameliorate the pain, you will begin to drink at work. And as the years pass... You will develop code through the reddish hue of seething anger and alcoholic stupor. <laughs> that is so true. Yes. That is exactly what you would do, because everything that came before you is horrible. Yes, and pretty much without exception. Yes. It's uh, either that or it's not an invented here syndrome. So, uh, when you quit or perish from the bamboo spear of a nearby antisocial programmer, a nascent developer will inherit your insane gibberish. And the cycle will begin anew. 
Yep. So I uh, believe that uh, references number five. If you don't engage in code reviews with the antisocial programmer of your group, you are taking a significant risk. In the best case, he will develop code without being encumbered, and he will beat project deadlines. In the worst case, he will start to lose his connection with humanity like Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now, and after convincing the maintenance staff that he is a god, he will plot to murder the entire floor from his bamboo cubicle. That is, uh, that is very dangerous. Don't let that happen. Yes. You. So... Yeah, that's, uh, I found pretty much all of these humorous, especially the, uh, the allocated time for a project. So, that pretty much happens all the time. So, I wasn't exactly, uh, privy to the, uh, time allotment of managers. Mm -hmm. Um, but this seems about right. And it got into a habit of whenever I reached for my jar of peanuts, that my manager would somehow appear from the stairwell. Uh-huh. He's like, hmm, I can't find my manager, but I know how I can reach him. <laughs> yep, just like that. Uh, and, of course, uh, 10% impromptu time spent in cage fights with HR managers, because you know that happens. Yes. Um, I, I really don't have much experience with HR, uh, but I've heard horror stories. In fact, I... Well, if you read the daily WTF, it's not hard to. <laughs> mm -hmm. How how big is your uh, organization? The one I'm at is about a dozen people, if that. Yeah, HR in that's probably pretty reasonable. Yeah. But when you grow past, you know, 150, 200, 1,000, it's over. Your life ends. Yeah. Um. Pretty much any anything bigger than that, you know, you pretty much have to have, like, at least one person almost dedicated to it. Right, and as because, soon as the person becomes jaded, it's over. Because right now, the person who is the HR person is also the project manager and the accountant. Mm -hmm. um, although the CEO is more of a uh, salesman. That's good. That's how they should be. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and our tester is pretty much also the analyst. So, and uh, one other thing that I noticed that I found a little bit disturbing, but uh, sort of works anyway is that you know a lot of this company are related to each other mm -hmm. so like the said business analyst is the ceo's daughter uh which um i think the project manager and the ceo are sisters um the my lead developer and the lady who used to be our accountant i think she's his mom or something that's interesting. So, and uh, and then also his uh, sister is uh, has moved in because like they like spun off for another uh, startup company. So like uh, you know, you know the the main lady in that you know gets the corner office, and then uh, the uh, the other woman she's she sits in the server slash break room what yeah you you were interrupted by a wonderful text let's see what that says i have no idea what that says something about throwing up in a bathroom <laughs> but that's not what it says actually <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the back room later uh. yeah 
Mm-hmm. Well, ask her for you. So, speaking of uh, backroom stuff, um, Forbes, the magazine, have you heard of it? Yes. Uh, apparently, I haven't read the magazine physically in ages and years, but I read the website occasionally. Yeah, apparently they got hacked and encrypted passwords were stolen. Oh, encrypted. Now, were they salted too? Uh, it doesn't say. That's why I used finger quotes for that. Oh, you finger quoted that on an audio podcast. That's pretty clever. Yes. Uh, can you hear it? Yes, I, I, I heard it. Yes, I, I got it. So, uh, is it that they, they just said that you should change your password and uh, be happy or not? It seems like uh, the email address for anyone who has registered with Forbes.com has been exposed. Please be wary of emails that purport to come from Forbes, as the list of email address may be used in phishing attacks. So the passwords were encrypted, but as a precaution, we will strongly encourage readers to change their passwords. So we have notified law enforcement, etc., etc. Well, that's good. I'm glad they notified the law enforcement, whoever that might be. So, The um, service, I think? uh, Um, Something like that. Yeah, I think so. But uh, apparently they were hit by the Syrian electronic army. Oh, them again? Yes. Well, you know, speaking of uh, being hit all this week, uh, it's kind of a weird thing. It has nothing to do with uh, a breach in password security, but all this week, Guild Wars servers have been being DDoSed. Hmm. And it's, is, it, uh, is it really appropriate to use that extra D in there anymore? I don't because know. It, because it kind of has to be distributed in order for it to be effective. You never know. It If, you, it, if it can only take one person on the okay. internet somewhere to bring your server down, you coded badly. Okay, well, in, 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 uh, in defense of that extra D, my server was just attacked by a DOS. It doesn't sound nearly as magnificent because DOS is lame. Mm, not necessarily. Like, how could you even try attacking a server with DOS? You if, couldn't. If if you attached a genetic life form to it. Yes, then it would just be a mutant. It would try to kill you. Right. With nerve gas. Right. That it couldn't control in the first place. So, but then it gets to sing to you afterwards. Good. So, uh, you want to talk about uh, YouTube? And by YouTube, I mean Kickstarter? Uh, and by no, I mean yes. Um, so, yeah, speaking of things getting, uh, you know... It. Well, you know, we would have a Kickstarter this time, except they got hacked too. So, uh, users are advised to change their passwords. And unlike pretty much every other... Uh, Every other breach, uh, Kickstarter actually goes into like how they actually did it, uh, how they actually you know stored their passwords. They were hashed and salted. Good. So, uh, like older uh, passwords were uh, like done multiple times with SHA one, mm-hmm. uh, but then later ones used bcrypt. Great. So yeah, good. Good going to uh, Kickstarter for actually, you know, storing passwords sort of correctly. And and I'm I'm glad they actually like wrote things like on the website here. Well, no password, uh, or no credit card data was accessed. Some yes. Information about customers were uh, accessed. Uh, that includes usernames, emails, mailing addresses, phone numbers, and encrypted passwords. So that's that's wonderful. And then they go on to say 
However, even though they were encrypted, a person for that is malicious enough with enough computing power could guess and crack encrypted passwords. Yes. So they're very clear and very precise about what they said about it. So, yeah, good for them. And uh, they also mentioned that they will be uh, elaborating a little bit uh, about, you know, how they uh, how they got hit. Mm hmm. So, well, and they also uh, have a good suggestion for you to use one password if you are a iOS user or LastPass if you're not. So, which uh, I'm a KeyPass user, so I'm not sure where that leaves me. Um, too smart for either of those two services. <laughs> We don't have uh, like any lull apple or uh, raspberry or anything. Woo, raspberry. Uh, it's something apple related anyway. Uh, okay. Steve Jobs' time capsule from the 1980s was recently evacuated. Uh, there was a Lisa mouse inside of it. So I'm wondering if Steve Jobs from 1980s, uh, you know, if by now, you know, would he, did he think that nobody would be using mice now? Hmm, I don't think he thought that. So, which is a good thing, because I recently unboxed a mouse on the very fringe of this podcast. That's right. Now, I have a better question, or maybe not better, but a different one. Do you think he would have hated the mouse that he made 20 to 30 years ago? I'd imagine. Because I hate that mouse. <laughs> I look at it, and I say, what a piece of crap. That is not ergonomic in any way. Although, to be fair, I might have been interested in using that uh, in light of the original iMac mouse. Like the piece of crap, like circular hockey puck yes. type mouse. Right, with the not even one button, but uh, the whole top is a button except the other side. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. I remember fifth grade, uh, like the very first iMacs, and they had that horrid uh, mouse. And, you know, it's like, yes, this is a new computer. You want to use this. And then you start using it. This mouse sucks. I don't want to use this anymore. <laughs> exactly like that. Well, and, and of course, I, I think he would also, though, even though he might not like the design and how it looks now, because, you know, they're all into aluminum or one piece of plastic or, you know, something. I think he would still appreciate that it has one button. Uh, that. But uh, then again, back in the 80s, you know, computers and even you know especially you know a mouse as an input device was a relatively new idea mm -hmm. um so you know they wanted to dumb it down so everyone could use it so but in so doing they gave us the horrid idea of double clicking things and like control clicking things 
instead of you know having you know additional buttons on the mouse in order to do those. So, and that's uh, you know why you get messages on websites saying only click this button once. If you yeah. if you double click this button, you may be charged twice. So and and so, do we know why they decided to dig it up now and not just leave it for longer? Um, well, apparently they had plans to do this back in 2000, but a major landscape project sort of uh, canceled that. Oh, okay. Well, his birthday is coming up. I think it's on February 24th. Pretty sure that's when his birthday is. Steve, anyway. So I guess it's a good time for people to uh, get hyped up about that and look back again. So apparently they also had a six-pack of beer inside of this. I wonder if it was any good. Uh, I would hope not. So, oh, well. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to Linux. Uh, okay. Some Linux news. So uh, you know how uh, you know Linux is open source and how anybody can uh, commit code to it? In theory. So, uh, you know, that mostly remains the same. You know, any, everyone is committing to Linux. You know, most of them are, you know, just doing it in their spare time. But, you know, as a group, uh, people from companies being paid to improve Linux uh, get the lion's share of commits and code, uh, you know, put into the Linux kernel. And uh, unsurprisingly, Red Hat tops that list. Uh, you know, does, doesn't surprise me because mm -hmm. they're one of the most popular uh, distributions out there, uh, followed by Intel, uh, which... I mean, I'm not exactly sure what their spin on this is exactly, but you know, hardware, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure they. I'm sure Intel makes a lot of high-end servers, components, and uh, and they probably do a whole bunch of uh, stuff with like thread scheduling and stuff. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, followed by Texas Instruments, Lenaro, never Sousa, heard. Of uh, never heard of them though. Uh, Susa, which is another Linux distro. Yep. Um, followed by a group of who knows where they're from, mm -hmm. uh, IBM, Samsung, and Google. So let's, let's think about Samsung. What do they have? Like, they're even a, a stranger than, I don't know, like Intel, I guess. What does Samsung do that needs commits? Uh, probably peripherals. I mean, they... Fridges? Mm, I'm nah, thinking more along the lines of, like, SSDs. Mm-hmm. But but I feel like there's a lot of other vendors. I mean, is is Samsung really the biggest solid state vendor? They're like, far like what as about I, Crucial? like Crucial must be pretty huge in in, in uh, you know between their memory and and, and then also between their uh, solid state vendoring. Yeah, and it's and I'm pretty sure that this does not include Android because that's Google. Right. Exactly. So yeah, that is a very good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Google, obviously. You know, yeah, Android. They, well, and not only Android, but even now uh, Chromebooks too. Um, I'm thinking more of the longs of lines of their. They pretty much have the biggest deployment of Linux. Oh yeah. Of anyone. Mm-hmm. So you know they definitely notice some bugs there. And you know what? Skype even runs on Android. So unlike Ubuntu. <laughs> which which is still installing. Uh yes, you're correct. So you might have to do something with that at some point. Um, yeah, start over. So, you know, 
okay, so you uh, found a fix, you wrote a fix, and you committed it, but someone still needs to sign off on that. And, uh, you know, these are the so-called gatekeepers. And as a whole, Red Hat leads, uh, along with the Linux Foundation, Intel, Google, uh, volunteers, SUSE, uh, Samsung, and Wolfson Microelectronics. Now, what could that be? I I would imagine that they would, uh, like, do microcontrollers for stuff. Well, apparently, their specialty is a passion for great audio. Microcontrollers, uh, digital signal processors and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's odd that they would uh, make the list for, like, approving uh, Linux kernel fixes, but okay. Uh, after them, it's Texas Instruments and then IBM. Well, it's not too bad. So, and Very it's... Reasonable. And it's not surprising that, uh, you know, Linus Torvalds as an individual doesn't really commit much to the kernel anymore. Right. So, yeah. And, but he uh. He still can be angry. Yes. Uh, he's, uh, flipped off pretty much every company every, every, in existence. Every. And even people who aren't companies, just people. Yes. Yeah. So, and it also has a statistics on, like, how the uh, kernel has grown by lines of code. Now, it looks pretty linear. Yes, but, you know, if you take a look at the labels on the side, it's 15 million, 16 million, and so forth. Um, mostly, Groot, uh, it points to the inclusion of support for a 64-bit ARM. Hmm. So, yeah, it's... Uh, going to be used in servers apparently that's what the uh trend is according to amd at least so uh speaking of uh uh kernel linux kernel news uh perhaps something that uh, would be more applicable to squirrel uh than yourself no i don't think he really knows too much about this either uh debian uh his favorite linux distribution uh, recently held a vote on what uh, what kind of initialization or startup system to use so they uh, sent out a vote to, I think, like some of the more important people in Debian uh, to say, hey, we need to choose something since like we want to go forward, choose something and go forward on it and not have like a billion, you know, different varieties of things mm -hmm. and to make uh, maintenance easier for all the packages that rely on this. Uh, so they uh, wanted to... Uh, you know, vote on this. The options were System D, Upstart, OpenRC, uh, Sys5 init, which is what it uses now, or talk about it some more. So uh, it turns out that uh, System D won. So you know they can go forward with this, and uh, this also affects all of the distributions that are built on top of Debian, uh, like Ubuntu. So, uh, if uh, you might have uh, pretty sure that, hmm, don't think we've actually mentioned this on this podcast or not, but uh, Upstart is what Ubuntu uses these days, and you know that was obviously in the in the running, but it lost. Uh, but apparently, uh, Mark Shuttleworth, the guy running Ubuntu, is not mad or angry at this. He's happy that, you know, something was chosen 
something better was chosen than you know what was available, and they and he apparently supports Debian's decision. Now, even though he's supporting the decision, he's not going to rip out Upstart apparently from the next uh, long-term stable release of Ubuntu. He's, I guess, he's still leaving uh, Upstart in there. Yeah, that's Which, reasonable. Yes. You know, especially because it's the long-term release it's supposed to be stable. Mm-hmm. Um, That's, what, two months away at, at, at most? And yeah, probably four, less. 14.04, so, mm-hmm. yeah, probably a little over two months away. So, and, uh, but who knows, it might be ripped out for the next long-term release. Oh, I, I assume it would be uh, ripped out for then, because that would be, like, what, 16.04? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a good two years, that's pro- probably plenty of time. And we all know that during those long-term releases, they try to be radical and change everything that we've ever known and loved. Well, they try to do that after the long-term release because they yeah. want things to be stable. You know, this mm-hmm. is, it's, you know, going to be supported for like, what, five years? Yeah, I think so, because that's a long time, right? And and they want, uh, you know, like, especially if you're running a server, Mm-hmm. That you know you don't really want to touch it more than you absolutely have to. So, so I don't really know too much about these initialization systems. So, like, what does Upstart do that I don't know others don't, or what does the new one do that others didn't? Um, I'm not exactly uh, too sure about that. You know, I haven't really read into them too much, but I know that the Sys five init uh, runs on like. I forget what they call them, but there's, like, certain levels of signals or something. Mm -hmm. And, like, one and two are used to, like, actually boot the system. And I think the normal one is, like, four or five. And then six means shut everything down. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but these are more along the lines of services, like the network stack or the audio stack of your system. So, yeah. Uh... I'm not exactly sure what the issues were, uh, but, you know, it's better, so... I'm awful. Uh, yep. So these are, you know, people who really know the deep internal system-level components, so, you know, I generally take their word for it. That's what I would do, too. Because they're not the NSA. Probably. So, um, moving on to, uh, hey, we mentioned Google at some point... Uh, The Google Liberation Front has recently gained more ground. It now occupies a large, contiguous swath of the Googleplex, and it now plots to overthrow the government of Larry Page. Wait, what? Apparently this isn't a third-world country? Um, But apparently the Google Liberation Front is all about uh, being able to keep your data out of all the Google services. And uh, it's about being able to observe International Backup Awareness Day better. So you can download data from almost every Google service now. They did a really good job with this. If you've never looked at the, you know, the stuff that you can export, you really need to. Yes. So you can download data from Contacts, Drive, G+, Gmail, and even YouTube. I mean, the fact that you can get anything out of Google Plus is is a miracle now. It, it, I don't think it exports your posts from Google Plus, or no, I guess it does. It just yeah, has yeah. some weird HTML stream and not JSON, like I would assume. But that's fine. But uh, I think one of the things that was going away was um, 
You, do you know uh, Google Dashboard? Not quite. Was that the thing that replaced, uh, like, iGoogle? No, the the Google Dashboard is kind of like the front end of Takeout. So it, ah. it, it's basically a way of showing in one place the data, or at least surface-level data, not the cool stuff, of all of the services that you use. And so you could see, like, your most recent emails and some stats about them, and you could see, uh, you know, how many Google Chats you've been in and how many contacts you have. Very surface-level data. Not really that useful. But one of the cool things that uh, Dashboard did was that there was a place that you could look at your location history, and then it would plot it all for as long as you've had your Android phone or your iPhone feeding data into it. It would plot it all on a really nice calendar and Google Map thing and it looked great but apparently they were getting rid of that and everybody was in a big haste to take out your location history because we all feared that it could suddenly disappear so uh, there's that and uh let's see the only major one i can see missing is uh, your search history mm, yeah because they don't want you to know what they know about you yeah so um, it can take quite a bit of time to gather your data from the dark corners of the Googleplex. So I'm, I, let's see, I only have like maybe 200 megs or so of emails. Uh, That's pretty good, actually. But it took maybe 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have like gigs and gigs or so, it might take a day or so. Um, so it works a lot like the uh, backup system I have on my blog. It pretty much gives you a zip with a whole lot of standards-based files inside of it. And if by standards you mean HTML, then yes. Yeah, but uh, for mail, it uh, exports it into an MBOX format. I'm not really familiar with what that looks like, so... so Probably something parsable, XML-y, guessing. So, oh. And then in Google Drive, you can you know, select if you want to export your docs in Microsoft formats or PDF. I think whatever. I'll take rich text. Or no, I'll take plain text. Um, I'll probably choose open documents. That's good too, that. I suppose. Yes. So, um, yeah, check this out and, uh, you know, back up your stuff. And you probably yeah. should do it every so often too. Because you never know when it might just suddenly disappear. Yes, and, uh, you know, apparently they can just yank your access to all Google services just because. Yeah, they really can, especially when the NSA calls them. Yeah, and uh, I've heard uh, a story from a guy who uh, got his uh, account locked, and he didn't really know why, but uh, like he had a friend who worked at Google, and apparently they got it resolved, and he looked back at it later, and the last thing that he did, or one of the last, thing- last things he did, was he had a spreadsheet on there and I think he was, like, generating passwords for someone, and mm-hmm. they saw that, and he's like, nope, we're cutting you out. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. The de- developer behind Worldscape Webcams explains the illogical predicament that led to his app's delisting from Google Play. Uh, to support it financially, he added ads to the app. And to remove them, he allowed people to go to a site and give him money through PayPal. Uh, and he did this because he did not live in a country from which Google Play allows paid apps from. So, like, I'm not exactly sure where exactly he lived, but probably some small country in Europe. 
mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know Google doesn't really pay money out to. But Google didn't like that anyway, so no more app for you. That's interesting. So, I, I I mean I guess it's it's you know fair that when you use an API that's from your SDK that uh, they don't want you to do in countries they're prohibited in. I guess that's fine, but yeah, but uh, you know he tried to work around the system a little bit, but even though that was like pretty much his only viable alternative, you know. He could not, you know, sell anything through the official Google Play Store, which is what Google wanted. They're like, nope. Now, so was it was it um, an in-app purchase that he was doing? No. Okay, so it was like download a key app and then unlock um, it, something. Sort of like that, you know. It looked like, uh, you know, pay through PayPal, and then he would email you some key that you would input. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So a lot of a lot of what a lot of developers do, and I don't know if. Um, this would have made a difference, but so they offer a free version with ads and then they just offer another version without ads that mm-hmm. you have to pay for behind just a regular payment. Now, if, if the country that he was in, which I still don't know, even though I read the post, which is weird, um, but if the country would allow regular ads in um, an app and then allow a regular payment, maybe not in-app purchasing and maybe not through an, an additional website, maybe that would be okay. So, oh, well. So, uh, speaking about ads and, you know, features on websites, you know those social media buttons? I do. You may be looking at them right now if you're listening on the website. You are most certainly not looking at them. I tr- trust me, you're not. <laughs> so, uh, a designer is apparently fed up with them, and he has uh, investigated, you know, the usage statistics behind them. And he really doesn't see any point to use them because they don't really work. They don't drive traffic and they sort of, you know, ruin the look of a site, a, you know, a little bit. A lot. So can I tell you a story? Go ahead. So you might have heard of this uh, network. I don't know how you did it, but you might have heard about it. And you might go to the website sometime and maybe you want to share it. Well, I trust that you're smart enough to copy and paste the link into whatever social network you like and figure it out. That said, when I was designing the site, I thought, hey, social media buttons, they're all the rage, right? Let's put them in. Well, it turns out that I hate them too, just like just like this guy, actually. And so one of the things I did, I don't think it was recently, but over last summer, I guess, 2013 summer, mm-hmm. I decided that I would make them hidden by default. So to expose the social media buttons, you have to load them. And I, I recall this. I think I know what website you're talking about. Yes. And so on the on the Nexus website, I uh, I force you to load the buttons because I hate looking at them, too. And I never use them personally. I just copy and paste the buttons, and uh, I, I just copy and paste the URLs, and I hope you do too. Yeah, and you know, some websites just go completely overboard with them. You know, they have like eighty. Yeah, I I've seen one website that has about that many, and they have uh, like aggregator services for social media buttons. So you pass in one URL, one title, and then the service i think one of the services i'm talking about is a wordpress service from jetpack and it will make all of the buttons with all the proper urls and attributes and you know things and then set up the iframes and set up the javascript load it all dynamically for you 
and spam your page with a bunch of crap. Yeah, I'm I'm remember I'm I remember a specific site. I think it was mostly purple that had a grid that had like sort of cards mm-hmm. and if you hovered over them they sort of like pulled out a little bit. And yeah. and this it had buttons for sites that, you know, you heard about once but nobody really uses. Right. And well, w- websites that used to be popular. Exactly. Like, you know, the delicious button. Does anybody use that anymore? No. Does the anybody dig- even use that? No, nobody does that anymore. How about the Pinterest button? Because you got to pin this podcast, right? Or the uh, MySpace button. Oh, yeah, because uh, all the musicians want to hear this show. Uh, or the, uh, what was it, the Orcut button? The, yeah, no, I, I, I've got nothing. <laughs> Phil, <laughs> Orcut is you. So, I hear it's really popular in Brazil. Yeah, it really is popular in Brazil, and, and nobody gives them credit for it, but it really is. So, but, uh, you know, be that as it may, you know, I I really do not seek that kind of rich functionality on my blog. So, because well, because I'm so, sort of like a anti-social hermit. I, I don't think so. I think for technical blogs, like your blog is, it's kind of technical and, and it's kind of like long form it's review based you you write things with words in it it's not just sharing pictures of cats and funny things uh, i think it makes sense that your audience can copy and paste links and share them on their own and uh, i know that you've even gone so far to distinguish between tn displays and ips displays <laughs> with a subtle color on the sidebar so <laughs> I, I think you're very aware of what your design looks like and i think it makes sense um Let's see. Then uh, this guy also mentions that uh, you know it's kind of depressing to look at your website and see that it's been shared zero times. Exactly. That's the other reason I decided to hide those buttons by default on the Nexus website. When we change domains, it turns out that I broke every show beforehand. <gasps> no. Yeah. So. Not good. Now, that said, Ian Buck, our good friend, loves those buttons, and he cried so badly when I made them hidden by default. So, um, and then, like, whenever you guys share, you know, one of my posts on Google+, Plus, you know, I'm still, you know, appalled that the title to the page does not come up properly. Yeah, I don't know why, because I looked into that, and it seems like it should. I don't understand. So... But uh, I did the, uh, you know, send the feedback on Google+, Plus, so I'm not sure if anybody's read it or even cares. I doubt they do. So, but be that as it may. Hey, uh, you've heard of FutureMark, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, the, the people that make 3DMark, and uh, apparently another benchmark called PCMark, has uh, announced a a uh, another product, or at least has announced that they're looking for partners to develop another benchmark. And guess what that is? Uh, something for smartphones. Um, I think they might already have something like that. Oh, okay. Um, something for uh, uh, monitors. Monitors. I'm not exactly sure how software would test that. Magic. Um, how about things without monitors? Oh, servers. Yes. Guess what it's called? Okay, so let's see. We've got 3D Mark that test graphics, PC Marks test PC. So I'm thinking uh, IBM Mark. Uh, to 
general? I mean, too specific? Yes, too specific. <laughs> okay, how about server mark? Yes. And I think IBM mark might be a different architecture or something. Oh, okay. Well, fine then. <laughs> Moonlander mark. So, uh, they have announced server mark and they're gathering up companies to, uh, you know, say, hey, this is, this, uh, performance metric is important to us and we'd like to actually measure that. Now, I would be very interested in it, uh, too, because I think a lot of people would also run ServerMark as it is on non-server products to to learn about how servery they are. Uh, like a Raspberry Pi. Raspberry Pi, maybe a Mac Pro, maybe just a computer in the closet, you know, anything. Maybe a toilet? Even a toilet. <laughs> so, um... It'd be interesting to figure out, you know, how this runs or how, uh, like, they divide up the individual, you know, tests anyway. Mm-hmm. In that, you know, uh, off the top of my head, 3D Mark, it, you know, it has specific tests for, like, right. shadows. It has specific right. tests for vertex processing. Can't uh, do that in a server. Usually. Pixel processing. But, you know, the same idea that it can be broken down in that they would test, you know, like, web requests. They would test, like, file serving and I'd imagine database performance. Well, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of servers, too. So that's a kind of a, a, an interesting idea, too. So, like, some servers might be geared towards processing power, raw processing, like an EC2 slice. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. then other servers might be geared toward just hosting solid-state drives. So different servers would have different things, I suppose. So it'll be uh, very interesting to, you know, see how this works out. Mm-hmm. So... Have you ever used singletons? I use them exclusively in uh, the Nexus website CMS, actually. So, uh, what do you use them for? So, one of the things I use a singleton for, and and this is basically because PHP sucks as a language, I use them basically as a namespace. A namespace for, like, all the other code? So, one of the problems with PHP is because it's not object-oriented like java is by default right you can have thousands upon thousands of functions just sitting around cluttering up your namespace that's just global and so to avoid that and so in wordpress there's plugins and other people can write code and you can just put it in there to avoid clobbering you tend to wrap things in a namespace so our namespace is nexus so it's easy enough so um have you ever uh, heard heard singletons being brought up in the context of global state being bad. Um, yes. So, for example, I think one instance might be it's really hard to keep a reference to your singleton if you make it one time and then can't get it back, or it might be hard to set up if you're doing unit tests because right the global state gets messed up somehow. Then. So it seems that breaking up a large singleton into smaller ones make the, makes them less bad, but you're apparently still left the problem that you still have singletons, which are by extension global state, which is bad. I don't know if they're really that bad in some cases. So like, for example, PHP, right? the state of the application lasts about 23 milliseconds because that's how long it takes to process the request. Mm-hmm. So does it really matter? Now, in a long-running application, you know, like in a browser or, you know, on a server that... Like a Java something. app server? A Java app server, or, you know, a real hosting platform. It might matter a lot more. 
So, but you know, in some cases, you know, yours it's sort of designed with you know only using one UI. It's kind of designed with only using one database or whatever. And at that point, you know, having a singleton being you know having guarding access to that sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm, definitely, and, and is a total you know totally rational way to build something. Um, and uh, on the programmer stack exchange, uh, this gentleman asks, you know, what about you know implementing a cache? So, like for instance, he's apparently building a massive corporate scale uh, style desktop app. It looks like, in that you know. Uh, talking about you know requesting data from the server uh, would chew up thousands of dollars of extra internet bills per week. Mm-hmm. So this would be huge. Um, so then, like the top voted answer uh, involves you know breaking it down, and uh, he uses a rather rather insane analogy of you using Microsoft Access as a database to a, you know, horrible YouTube clone. That would be terrible. So it might look faster than YouTube, though. <laughs> it might actually be faster, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for instance, like he breaks it down, uh, like, for instance, there's there would be a media cache for the videos and a profile cache for the account page area. And like a general page cache for the most popular page. So, uh, but then he, uh, you know, elaborates on this further and saying that this might not actually be the, uh, like the ideal solution because, uh, like a cache system would be more of an implementation detail than like what the, uh, object actually does and is supposed right. to function as. So, uh, in in my framework that I use for coding the Nexus website and a few other things that I just use around whenever I need PHP, uh, PHP actually in PHP five point something it's pretty recent really. There's something called a trait. Have you ever heard of that? Not off the top of my head. So you know in an interface in Java, so it just yeah. defines the stubs or the signature rather. Uh, well, a trait is basically like an interface, so it it gives you the definition, uh, but it also can provide an optional declaration for your code. So, for instance, you might say get bulk bags, and then leave that for a class to implement in a in an interface. But as a trait, you can actually provide the you know functionality if you want, and you just mix it right in. You just just goes right in. It's actually really cool. So it's like uh, kind of like multiple inheritance, but without inheriting. Just multiple interfacing, I guess, with definition. I don't know how to explain it. But so one of the things that I've done is I've abstracted the singleton nature of a bunch of my classes into a trait. So I call it a singleton trait. <laughs> and basically it just it just has one, you know, function in it called get instance when it's called if there's no instance already it makes one with it through the private constructor and then it returns it and mm-hmm. then if it's already made it just returns the one it's previously made so it's a really nice setup and it, it's actually really nice uh for what i need php to be working f- uh with and for but so, you know i, I hear then, so often that you don't want singletons because you probably just want two like what happens if you want to then then your life is over and you can't have that so, but there, 
you know, in my experience, if you need two, you really need way more than two of something. Exactly. Right. So, but, you know, then again, you could probably hack your way around that a little bit. I'm sure you could. So, so uh, I, I'm kind of stuck in the PHP WordPress community, but another example I can think of is many times the in the core, you know, the core of WordPress, they people have asked for a driver for MySQL or Postgres or whatever, mm-hmm. and just to be interchangeable, so that you would pass in your PDO or your Postgres or your MySQLi or whatever into the WordPress database singleton thing Mm -hmm. and then it would just you know switch based on that but then people ask well what if i want to do two things what if i want to read from two different kinds of databases at once and then it's a singleton and then life is over and we're screwed (laughs) so you know there's different cases and it's complicated yes so and then you know this is also brought up within the context of uh, dependency injection Right, which exactly. is which is actually pretty nice in that you don't need to do your get instance method. Yeah, that that get instance stuff it it looks nasty and it is nasty. So and uh, I especially recall my previous job that's pretty much how they implemented singletons, but they also made the mistake of uh, like using the Java date formatters. They mm. made that as I think it was just a class level uh, field. Mm-hmm. But what they did not realize is that that is a not thread safe class. Ooh. And if you have that as a class level in a singleton, that is very bad. It's weird that that's not thread safe. I mean, I have no idea what it could possibly be doing that isn't. So, but, you know, I'm, I was very much surprised that they did not get reports every day of, you know, hey, I in, I inputted this date and I saved it and now it's wrong. That is pretty surprising. But then again, I'm not exactly sure what the load volume was there. Mm-hmm. One but, request per hour. <laughs> but, you know, they we did have a few clients, but, you know, they were, you know, these big companies, but they was just all in the HR department mostly. Mm-hmm. So who knows? So hey, do you want to talk about Chrome? Uh, I you know I I think Chrome is is covered actually. Why don't we talk about Firefox? Firefox. You, you're the, you're the Firefox representative here, as far as I know. That I am. Yes, and so I I was really curious about your opinion on the revelation that Firefox is going down the drain, i.e., they are bringing ads to Firefox. Wait, i.e. is bringing ads to Firefox. Uh, okay, fine. Hold on. Let me change it. EG, they're bringing ads to Firefox. Oh, that other browser fork that doesn't exist. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, my opinion on this is I really don't care. No? Uh, because no problem? Because I never see the new page tab ever. So what do you, what do you have a uh, new page set to or new tab? I have a new page tab set to a uh, a page of links uh, that is, you know, sort of like a crude uh, version of, like, favoriting or bookmarking mm-hmm. things. And that's just your own private thing you host somewhere? Uh, it's a HTML file on my hard drive. Okay, that's fair enough. That I have been maintaining for, what, 15 years? Oh, that's pretty impressive. So I always thought of doing that, but I was always far too lazy. 
Yeah, it looks sort of like this. Okay, that is massively unacceptable. I think it's time to learn how to use style sheets. <laughs> Not that you don't know how, but I'm just saying. Styles more. Uh, I really don't care about whether or not it's responsive because I use, you know, monitors that are like at least a thousand pixels wide. Uh, I thought a thousand inches. Wow. (laughs) Well, so I, I think it's really interesting that Firefox is bringing the ads to the forefront. So does that mean Mozilla is hurting so badly for money that they, that their Google revenue has dipped so far because of Chrome and just not Mozilla usage? I seem to recall that. Uh, like a little while ago, like it must have been like three or so years ago that they had renewed their agreement with Google mm-hmm. in that they pretty much almost doubled their revenue that comes from Google. So, so it doesn't uh, sound like they're hurting then. So I'm not exactly sure if that has expired or not. On the other hand, if uh, now... Between then and now, how much has Firefox decreased in worldwide market share of usage? Because if less people are doing those searches, then even if it doubled, then still people are using it less. Uh, Well, the percentage of users really hasn't changed all that much since then. I mean, Chrome has grown a little bit. And then it's stolen a lot from others. But, uh, you know, it it all depends on uh, what... Uh, browser sort of tracking agency that you use, mm-hmm. whether you use like net market share or stat something, stat right. counter. Yeah. And uh, it, the one that Ars Technica uh, uses pretty much has Chrome and Firefox neck and neck. I think Firefox is a little bit more, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the other one has Chrome at like 60%. That's pretty impressive. So I'm pretty sure that something shady is going on there. Because, yeah, I, especially because Chrome likes to pre-cache, like, everything. Yeah, they do. They do. And I, I think Internet Explorer is still higher than Chrome, honestly. So Yes. So one of the things that Mozilla said, or I'm not sure who in the organization, maybe the CEO or just some person, but they, they, they basically explain the idea. So it's it, the ads on Firefox in, in the future, I'm not sure when they're coming, but they'll be only on the new tab page. It's not like they're injecting over other people's ads or anything. And they're going to be highly curated. So high curation usually means good ads. But one of the things... How many wondering... people say that? Well, a couple people. Mostly people <laughs> from the deck. So... Uh, but what what kind of methods will they be using to figure out ads that you would want to see? Or will it just be a blanket of here are the ads there you go that's yeah it. no no personalization at all yeah and i'm pretty sure that there would still be a market for that mm-hmm. so um and then the other solution is you know i'm not sure but it might actually be able to be plugged in away oh yes indeed or extensioned away or something that would that would be that would be good too i suppose um, or like you can, you or you more can, personalization. Click here. Or you can just steal the source code and make it yourself. Right. Well, and and so they also did. Uh, so they didn't explain if it was going to be personalized by tracking, which would be weird for Firefox to do. Which is exactly. But they also did say that it would be um, some in, in some part based on local products, if possible. So presumably so they'd be using the IP. Geo- 
yeah, IP or the Geo IP or the Geo APIs rather. So, yeah, it's. I'm not exactly sure what to think of it, but I mean, I as far as I can tell, it won't affect me that much. So, yeah. But then uh, Chrome pretty much uh, sends most stuff back to Google anyway. So, right. So you just can't win, I guess. I, I don't think you can win. So, no. um, I'm not sure about Opera, but as far as I know, there aren't any like set ads in Opera anymore. No, I don't think so. So, yeah. We can just uh, use that as the alternative. Uh, yes, we're going to use the even less used alternative as the alternative. Uh, I don't know about that. Might as well just use Internet Explorer. Yay! Oh, no. So yeah, let's uh, go on to some appreciate and deprecate. Okay. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to? Uh, why don't you go first? Okay. Well, I am appreciating something that I just started using a few days ago, actually, and that's Grunt, or more more likely known as Grunt JS, which is based on top of Node.js. So as you might know, something like Ruby, it has uh, Ruby gems, so mm-hmm. it's kind of like a package manager. And then well, Python eggs. Um, the one I use for Python is PyPy. Ah, uh, it's a little bit different, but you know, same idea. It's a package manager for Python. Right, right. Uh, so Grunt is a package manager, or rather, it Grunt is a you know a module or an extension that you can use with Node and um, NPM. And Grunt is basically what is kind of like a uh, initialization script or a preprocessing script platform. So they they call it the JavaScript task runner. And from that term, it makes me think that it's some sort of a runtime. Right, yeah. So like it's like pre-compiling JavaScript, pre-compiling SAS, pre-compiling CSS. It's really cool, actually, because up until now, I was using Compass, which was a SAS pre-compiler or whatever you call it, I guess. And while that was great, I couldn't process JavaScript. And more importantly, I couldn't automate the process of deploying files from local to the server. So normally I like to work in files that are uncompressed. So Mm -hmm. if you've ever seen compressed CSS, it's kind of icky. If you've ever seen compressed JavaScript, it's completely unreadable. All the variable names go away. Have you seen my CSS? I have seen your CSS. It's neither unreadable or readable because you write it funny. (laughs) Um, but with, with Grunt, I can actually set up a bunch of tasks to run during development. So you just, you just type in Grunt in your terminal and it'll just run. It'll watch for file changes, update the exported files accordingly on demand. Uh, whether that's slow or not remains to be seen. And then upon deployment, you just type in Grunt deploy. It runs the pre-processing tasks to minify, to concatenate, uh, and to strip out variable names and comments and, you know, things like so, that. So it's essentially, you know, it sort of automates all those web development tools. 
exactly. like SAS and CoffeeScript and right. stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the best part is that it r syncs for me without sucking, and it does it right. Hmm. So uh, I've also been using a just a single bash file to do my deployments, and that that's fine. But uh, it it wasn't the best, and uh, I accumulated a lot of files on the server <laughs> when I changed them. Like anytime I renamed a file, the old one was still there, and I you humiliate cost- files. Yeah, it, it caused me a lot of problems. So the the grunt takes care of that. It it looks for differences between server state and local state and syncs them accordingly. Hmm. So I've also put a link in here to what I grunted. Uh and that's that goes up to GitHub and you can see my grunt file. Uh it's really like, you know, make file, grunt file. Pretty clever, <laughs> isn't it? Ha ha. It, it it really is just JavaScript and a bunch of functions. It's really cool. Yeah. So uh you can take a look at that if you're interested in grunt. Now, I was looking for, and I couldn't find it, but earlier today I was reading about Broccoli. And apparently bro- Broccoli is the next generation of Grunt. I don't know why, but that's that's a story for another show. So, I mean, the uh, like the sort of icon for this is just like a boar or something. <laughs> yeah. So, I guess the boar eats broccoli or something. I don't know about that. So, uh, now for uh, my... Uh, appreciate and deprecate, and I have a few of these. So, uh, have you heard me talk before about water? Uh, I, I, I have actually heard of that. The, the uh, web application testing in Ruby. Um, this is a, uh, it's not a Ruby specific library. It's a, uh, wrapper for Ruby of another library called Selenium mostly. Mm-hmm. It's just that, but in Ruby. Um, so, you know, what it does is that it allows you to open up a browser and simulate someone actually using a website in it. So you can, like, go to, you know, whatever URL and, you know, you can say, okay, click this link, hover over here and, you know, see if this text gets loaded or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had some spare time at work like two weeks ago and I'm like, okay, well, won't we, uh, won't I check this out and see if I can, you know, institute some sort of automated testing, uh, in, in my environment. So I, uh, you know, went ahead and was like, okay, we need, need to figure out, you know, how to work this thing. I was like, oh, okay. So what I did was, you know, I gave it the URL to my sandbox environment mm-hmm. and I was able to select a category uh, from like the top menu bar. And it's really nice because the function to do that uh, returns when the page has been loaded. So you don't need to like uh, do any like sleep uh, functions, mm-hmm. except except I've noticed for. Like when things like Ajax stuff, right? It sort of has a little bit of an issue with that, but uh, uh, generally that's you know doesn't really matter about that. Um, so you know it's like okay, got the category page loaded, and then it shows up like a grid of products, and I can query uh, to get that UL that unorganized list that all those you know products are in, mm-hmm. and I can say 
give me all of the anchor, you know, the A links from there, and, you know, I can just, it returns as a standard Ruby array, and I can mm-hmm. say, give me a random one and click it. So I can, you know, choose a random product, bring it up, and then I can choose, you know, like the select the variant, so, you know, ch- click on a color and click on a size. And, uh, and then I, uh, also implemented, it's like, it, I think it's about 20% of the time it'll order two, uh, order a quantity of two, so it inputs the two into a, you know, quantity box, mm-hmm. and then it hits the add to cart button. And then, uh, I also implemented a full checkout flow, all from this one script. That's great. So, you know, I'm planning on, see, I think I already have it being able to log in. Uh, I also wanted to, I think I've built it to register a user, but I haven't actually made sure that it works yet or not. Um, along with the, like, contact customer service form. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm trying to chisel out, you know, like, the most important functionality and try to automate testing on that. So, um, the only downside is, is that the, there, I haven't figured out a way to cleanly select something from a dropdown. Mm. Um, but, you know, you can query things on a page by ID or by name. You can also query by a CSS selector. Which, that gives you a pretty good freedom. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, because it's at that point, it's sort of like using SQL. Right. So um, so what I do is, you know, get the ID of the, uh, the select dropdown and then space and then option element where like the value equals the one I want and then click on that. Yeah. So it's it, I think it's a little bit more convoluted than what is necessary. So that's uh anyways, uh, water is my appreciate. Um but at the same time I sort of want to deprecate Ruby. Uh because an hour after getting into this, I realized that I sort of hate Ruby because uh parentheses are apparently optional when you're calling functions. Yep. And it was several times that I'm like, okay, uh, need to, you know, pass parameters into my function here. So I was like, parameter, space, parameter, space, parameter. It's like, okay, why are you not working? Apparently, you need to put commas in there. Parentheses are optional, but commas are not. What well, in the world? Yeah, Ruby's kind of weird like that. So, you know, I sort of like a language, you know, things that there's, you know, one way to do it. Um, you know, there's, if, if you're really clever enough, you could try, you know, you can figure out other ways, but there should only be one obvious way to do it. Mm-hmm. And parentheses being completely optional, uh, I sort of don't like that. I sort of don't like JavaScript in the way that semicolons are optional. Well, they're only optional in the old days, and in the future, they won't be. So, but uh, JavaScript is a whole other can of worms. Yes. So, I want to deprecate Ruby. So, I hate Ruby. Maybe I want to go on to another language. Uh, yes, yeah, like, PHP, right? Uh, Python. Oh, darn. It's a uh, main competition. 
the uh, first language that I uh, started out programming in. So uh, you may have, uh, if you listen to the Fringe, you'll hear the full story about this. But, uh, you know, apparently in e-commerce, the, uh, the presence of a shipping address is pretty important. And you know that shipping addresses, they can go all around the world. Yes. So I was recently provided with a CSV file that, you know, has pretty much like states for every country in the world in it. And I needed to match it up with country codes in this other XML file to produce uh, like a snippet of XML so I can move that over into like some other place so I can get like pretty nice drop downs on a website. So, you know, I guess this sort of uh, belies the fault of how little I know about Python. But I do know that in Python 3, one of the banner features was all strings are now Unicode. That's, that's awesome. I can type in my Icelandic until I die. But I still can't talk to anyone because all the input-output APIs do not default to Unicode. Because they're implemented in C. And I need to go into the docs and figure out what in the world's going on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, thanks, Python, for giving us Unicode, but I still cannot talk to anyone to it unless I pass in, like, other parameters. Yeah. Um, but in that case, I was using the CSV and the element tree APIs in Python, and those seem to be pretty nice. So... Yeah, the, uh, uh, let's see, I was using the CSV file API that, uh, puts every, puts every row of the file into a dictionary, mm-hmm. which is pretty nice. And That's it great. uses the keys from the first row. So yeah, it's amazing. Um, and the element tree API is, it seems to be less cumbersome to use than like a DOM API. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, good job on doing that. So were those uh, extra APIs? Were those like those were those were included? Oh, okay, those are included. That's great. I'm glad when very logical and core seemingly functions are included by default. Yes. So uh, we got some podcast feedback uh, for this time uh, for the last show. That's good. So I'm not exactly sure who got there first, but. Buckface, uh, Ian Buck, uh, sent in some feedback uh, uh, saying that computers with the ability to make calls over the modem sounds really cool. Makes Google Voice and Gmail seem rather convoluted and silly. Of course, I wouldn't give it up for the world. Uh, My response, uh, these days, having a phone line modem is rather convoluted and silly. So, I don't know if you listen to uh, my uh, Affinexus fringe recently, but Matt and I were curious about what the dial-up sounds meant. Yes. And they actually mean something. So if you're interested in what the dial-up sound actually meant, aside from being absurd and actually sounding cool, it actually means a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I recently saw one that's sort of like a, like a voice print or a spectrum analyzer. Mm-hmm. That actually points out as like, okay, this is doing this and whatnot. And that sort of like jittery sound towards the end, I think, is actually the uh, the speed negotiation. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of negotiation things 
it's playing and I don't know why. So, uh, but you may have heard a dial-up. You may have heard a dial-up sound uh, on this very podcast. I think it might have been last episode. Yes, I think so. So, yeah. And uh, let's see, this was not the particular one that I was that I saw. Like it actually had like a huge diagram and wasn't actually a uh, um, like a SoundCloud thing. Yeah. But uh, anyways, uh, some some bloke named Ryan uh, chimed in at one time. Mm, did he now? Yes. And he uh, mentioned, so glad you covered the Google services outage. Yeah. So, I, you know, yeah. I, I think it's it's good to cover those things, especially when they happen as rare as they are. And, you know, you might say, it's like, well, why are you complaining about a free service going down? Well, at my company, we have Google Apps, and I'm pretty sure that we pay for Google Apps, and it's a central part to our workflow. So Google being down is very significant for me. Right. And it's one thing when, you know, the public non-paid apps go down and it's like, eh, fine, be that way. But when Google Apps goes down, because you can almost guarantee that they're slightly different and probably looked after, that's funny. But what's worse is that during that outage, there was an AMA that yeah. those reliability team members <laughs> screaming. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think that was the lol Google from last time. Exactly. So uh, then he said, have a Linux box mirroring Gmail and Thunderbird perpetually. Enable offline mode and drive and use Bing. Bing! <laughs> you know, uh, as an alternative to Bing, I suppose you could use DuckDuckGo, which is yeah. uh, our favorite here, of course. So um, I came across a post, I think it was today, saying that it also gives better technical results. That's so, interesting. So, you know, uh, AvD Grimm, uh, which I believe I featured uh, a story or post of his in a previous episode, he uh, gives a visual guide of why. And so, for instance, he puts in JavaScript array reverse, and it apparently shows, you know, sort of like a definition clipping mm-hmm. at the top from MDN. Uh, which is like the best source of web, uh, web technology minutia ever. It really is. The very first result after that is that said article from the Mozilla Developer Network. Now I wonder. Now if I do this same search, and of course I can't copy and paste it. Yeah, I'm not doing it. But if I did it, how far down the page do you think W3 Schools would be? Like not there at all, or like number eight? Um. It might appear on the first page. Like, I but, feel like it should still appear on the first page, but... Further. Um, but if I recall, DuckDuckGo doesn't have pages. It's more of an infinite scroll. Oh, well, that's... If I recall. Um, but... And then the second result is something from Stack Overflow. That's fine. I'm okay yep. with that. The third one is from Rose India, which... That's, I don't know. Which, a- which, honestly, I think is better than W3 Schools. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so there you go. Uh, I'm glad you're talking about AMD's new Opteron chip. I have no doubt that Matt will try to get this in our show, despite it's not consumer in nature. 
I wonder what the price will be, and I wonder about its Ubuntu slash Linux compatibility these days on ARM. And and thinks it will be about a hundred dollars for the starting price. And uh, and you know the ARM Linux support is actually rather fine, uh, like Debian. Uh, last I checked, there is a official De- Ubuntu ARM flavor. That's really impressive to me. Now I wonder how many packages will work. Because, you know, some packages are not ready for ARM, I imagine. So, um, see, I'm trying to think of, uh, like, when I set up my uh, Raspberry Pi, that I think about at least half of the Debian packages were available. That's good. So, So. I I was trying to install Skype on Ubuntu earlier, and that's a 64-bit computer, you know, just regular... X86. X86 running on 64-bit, and... Skype doesn't work, presumably because Skype sucks, but more likely, according to Stack Overflow, is because some package that it, you know Ubuntu used to include is now gone and various things. So uh, aside from that, I had a lot of, maybe not a lot, but I had, did have some 64-bit compatibility issues, and you know it's not even a architectural change in terms of instructions. It's just an extension, so I wonder if you know, driver support will be weird on ARM on those machines. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So, Java 8 support is is neat, I guess. Have you seen Java 8? I know you have. Uh, something about uh, first-class functions, finally. Yeah, they're really weird. Like, we get those in, in JavaScript every day of the week, but in Java, you get maybe an anonymous object, and that's about it. Yeah, and the 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 syntax they picked for those Java eight functions yeah. is uh, really intense uh, syntactic sugar. There, I don't even know what it is. It's it's really more like pepper because it's bitter, but it makes it taste good. <laughs> so, I uh, I buy primarily WD, but honestly, I buy so few drives because they're always about one hundred and twenty dollars for NTB. And I want a small Windows startup disk. So, um, again, hard drives win for bulk bag storage. Yep, that's it. Yep. Um, So, yeah, this year I'll probably upgrade my servers and maybe my desktops uh, later this year if I feel like it. And, yes, I knew that they existed and were real things. uh, Bulk bags, that is. And really? I was I was curious about them after you started using that term. Well, uh, that's good. I'm glad you were curious long before I was. Yeah, which was last Friday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just like that. I mentioned box is icky. Yes. Um, so, do you, do you want an explanation for why I think so? Sure. So. When I started using Dropbox, I think it was in high school, maybe my sophomore year, and and basically I was just sitting in the computer lab with my computer teacher who really couldn't teach me a whole lot, <laughs> and so we would just talk and hang out, right? And so whenever I would read news, I would tell him, or if I found a cool product, we would try it, you know, stuff like that. And so right, I found right. Dropbox. It was it came out. It, it had just started getting support for Mac, which was wonderful. And so I sent him a referral thing, and then he sent it out to other people in our little programming class at the time. And so I got a bunch of, you know, extra space. And so then a few years later, 
box started to be relatively widespread in usage and they somehow conned their way into a deal with HP on their new $499 HP touchpad that started settling for just $99. What a deal. What a deal. So not only do you get 50 gigabytes of box online storage, but a tablet for $99. So I I tried it, but sadly at the time, it didn't have a client-side app just like Dropbox, which made it a deal-breaker and made it basically useless. Which it now has. Which it now has. But because I was so loyal to Dropbox at the time, I didn't switch over, and now I'm not loyal to Dropbox at all. I use copy. (laughs) So uh, I think that Box is getting ready for an IPO. Um, Looks like they secretly filed... uh, things with whatever government agency they need to something yeah um for probably one in april sometime mm-hmm. uh they want to you know even though that they're used by most of the fortune 500 and by most i mean like 450 or 490 at least that's pretty good uh, it only has about one fifth of the value of dropbox well and and you know like that might be in most regards to the fact that most consumery people don't associate cloud storage with Box. Most people assume cloud storage, okay, Dropbox, okay, Google, okay, maybe uh, Microsoft. What is it, mm-hmm. OneDrive? Uh, I don't think it is yet, but... It, yeah, I know, but I can't think of the real name. The, the, cloud, the cloud storage platform formerly Oops. known as Windows okay. Live or something. Oh, Windows Live Mesh. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, Windows Live Mesh, right? Or f- Live Folders or something. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> so, like, the the consumer mindset is so geared towards not box that that's why they're devalu- they're so de- undervalued. So, um, the only downside I know about box, at least the clients that I work with, mm-hmm. is that the uploads are pretty slow. Oh. And by slow, I mean about... 200 to 500 K per second. So basically my max speed. So, but if I put something into the sky drive, it goes at like two and a half megs. So that might be like uh, an issue on scale because sky drive is powered by Azure and you can be guaranteed that Azure servers have a backbone connection of a billion <laughs> where box is probably kind of poor and can't afford it. So, but, uh, Maybe with an IPO, they could change that. Yeah, maybe. So, yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, SkyDrive and whatnot, Windows 1 is so coming. It is so coming. Uh, maybe that's what they will re- rename, uh, like that Windows Blue or whatever. Well, Blue came out, that was 8.1. Or now, now, now the next thing that comes out is Threshold. And Threshold isn't just one OS, it's the wave of OSs. So, yeah. Xbox. Xbox OS, Windows OS, and Windows Phone OS. Um, or whatever that thing was they were talking about, subscription? Uh, I don't know if there's actually a subscription OS really being discussed. Like, I still think that's a far or, off. Or some of. other kind of constantly updating system. Well, they have been talking about their managed platform, which was called something with an M, Midori or something. I don't know. Yeah, but... They- you know, I, I remember there being news a while back about Windows moving away from the 
one OS every like three years or something. Well, so that was always the dream with Windows 7. So they said that we will not take a three-year development cycle. That They said they would get there faster. Still took three years to Windows 8. And look at what they pooped out, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. So that conspiracy is probably true, uh, referencing the conspiracy between big water and big smartphones. Yes. Uh, your toilet has Linux and has water in it. Well, I told so. Yep. Well, remember that one story I told about pulling the sink and discovering that it actually ran on air? Yeah. <laughs> Vicious. Yeah, I I can't remember what episode that was, but it was essentially the problem that the heatsink had been on top of that CPU for years. I'm not exactly sure how many. It was at least five years or something. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I kept on pulling the heatsink, and the CPU pulled out with the heatsink straight out right. of the socket. Uh-huh. And um, watch out for that. Yeah. Um, fortunately, none of the pins, uh, got pulled out. Good. I think maybe one or two of them were bent, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I could just use one of my mechanical pencils to straighten that out. Yeah. And it worked fine the last time I powered it on, so. I mentioned, I feel a lot like Linux is just unresponsive like that for a mystery, and the only way to fix the mystery is to basically reinstall Am I talking about Windows? <laughs> and so, yes, you are talking about Windows. So it's funny that I wrote that a week ago or two weeks ago or whenever I did it. Because today, um, I don't know if my mouse is dying or if it's my keyboard is dying or my you know USB hub is dying. But I've been getting spurious input uh, just around. So I'll, I'm, I'll just be sitting in one window and then I'll have my mouse on the other screen. And suddenly it'll just switch you know, focuses, and it's like, whoa. And so, and of course, what do I do? Well, I open Process Manager, see what's using my CPU, see if there's some rogue thing going on. Doesn't look like any spikes are going on. Nothing's taking a whole lot of CPU. So it doesn't seem like that. So I started looking at what is the best way to install Windows (laughs) 8.1? You know, wiping a computer, best way to fix a problem. Pretty much. So, uh, then you mentioned that backlogs really don't work for podcasts. It's nice to see them, but to listen to them is a hard task. And I agree. So, uh, now, when when your show ends in the future, because, you know, at the Nexus already quit two years ago or something. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I've always thought is, if we had a show that was long-running and then ended, what would I do to it? So, one of the things that I've made when two of their premiere shows ended was um, they made a system so that you would just basically subscribe to a feed, but it would have like a counter so it would know which feed was yours. And then for the next N episodes, it would feed them to you as if they were new again. So Hmm. you would start on zero and then one and then two and then three and so on for the future until it would just restart again so that you would never be alone. (laughs) Oh, that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, if you would like to uh, submit some comments to us, uh, go ahead and use that link that was on the very podcast episode page beside the show notes. Right? Right under our faces. Yes. Now. Yes, like, do it now. Down there. Oh, crap, oh. you can't see that. 
It, yeah, oh crap, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at what you did. So, um, as mentioned, go to uh, Google and observe International Backup Awareness Day. Do it now. So, uh, hi mom, how you doing? Uh, apparently, in my dreams, uh, my mom is a badass. Uh, I remember, let's see, I think I dreamt that we were in some office somewhere. And she was sitting on a couch, and I was at a like reception desk. And after a while, she got up and came over and said something to me. And it ended ended with, need to write some jQuery to punch that guy in the eye. Or something. That's fantastic. <laughs> and everyone with an earshot just burst out laughing. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, yeah. Hi, Mom. How you doing? Well, you know... The jQuery recruiters are always looking for the jQuery ninja or the jQuery rock star. Yes. So, you know, she's right up there then. So, and uh, see, that seems to be about it. Uh, special thanks to Jimmy Henson, a.k.a. Big Giant Circles, for letting us steal, I mean, use his music on my podcast. Uh, he just recently released his Kickstarted album, which was featured on a previous episode, uh, called The Glory Days. It seems to be better made than his previous album, Imposter Nostalgia. The Glory Days is smoother, sort of like a milkshake, compared to the jalapeno burrito before it. I, you know, I, I also happen to be eating some big giant burritos while listening to it for the first time. I, I see. What about the milkshake? Does, does that mean something? Um, It was a couple of days later, but I eventually got a Frosty at Wendy's. Okay, fine. That's fine. And uh, whoever posted the torrent of this should be stabbed because, <laughs> you know, he released it to the Kickstarter backers like two or three days beforehand. And he saw it on like whatever torrent website. And uh, he had a exchange with the uh, Loading Ready Run crew members, mm -hmm. uh, which, if you recall, did the uh, Xanator thing yep. from last time. Oh, I remember that. So, uh, yeah. Have fun with that. Listen, and you can buy it on Bandcamp. Sounds so, good. And uh, I happened to check my email. I think it was like Friday at around noon or lunchtime or something that I got a message saying, hey, uh, live uh, release event like right now on Twitch. So I'm like, OK, let's go ahead and do that. So I saw that. So it was uh, pretty good. He uh, had some... Uh, uh, guests on there, like other uh, chiptune artists on there, so it was pretty cool. And uh, let's see, other than that, I think that might be the last episode for this month. So I seem to have settled into an almost fortnightly schedule. That's not bad, though. Yep. Uh, I I really like the enjoyment of, you know, hey, uh, want to do a podcast at some point? I do enjoy yeah. that, too. <laughs> So I hope that this is a nice surprise that uh, livened up your uh, meager existence. I hope so, too. So uh, aside from that, it looks like we might be getting a lot of snow tonight here in Pittsburgh. Well, that's funny because we just got a lot of snow here today. Uh, and then we also might have some uh, freezing rain. So as a precaution, uh, uh, the project manager requested that everyone bring their laptops home. So we might be able to work from home again tomorrow. That's great. 
So, and uh, it, it's going to be pretty important because uh, one client we're going to uh, be posting shipping messages on the website. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Aside from that, uh, yeah, I just played through Stalker Shadow of, Shadow of Chernobyl. Uh, rather old but very scary game. I'll be posting about that probably next week. Uh, but this week I want to do another one of those CPU architecture articles. That was pretty interesting last time. So uh, the x86 or the Itanium one? Uh, I think it was the first one. The x86. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that was uh, rather convoluted and very layered. Well, yeah. So, um, all right. Well, I guess I'll be uh, doing whatever. Okay, sounds good. Have a good one. Have a good one.